Let us pray. Gracious Father, we come to you today um, as people uh, from various places, uh, from various homes, from various lives. Father, and yet you know each of us intimately. Father, we come to you today as people uh, with various concerns on our hearts and weights that we carry uh, upon our shoulders. Father, we come to you in need of your help. Father, some of us today are fearful of the unknown, whether it be a future, uh, whether it be finances, whether it be uh, a child uh, or grandchild who is wayward. Father, I pray that you would bring comfort to us. Father, uh, some of us come here today uh, with uh, feelings of uncertainty, uh, maybe even of who you are. Pray, Father, that you would bring clarity. Father, I pray that you would meet each of us here today and that the gospel uh, would be what we would celebrate. Jesus Christ would be the one that we would see and that we would rejoice in. So, Father, I pray that you, by your work, by, the, by your spirit uh, at work in each of us, that you would quiet our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. Father, help us to know that you indeed are God, that you are trustworthy and good and kind. And Father, as we open up your word today, I pray that it would feed our souls. And once again, that Christ would be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week, uh, I heard a story, uh, uh, read a story about an earthquake, and I want to tell you about it. And I don't know if it's a true story. I don't think it really matters. But it was in a reputable uh, source, uh, so I think it was from Chicken Soup for the Soul. So I'm sure all those stories are true. At any rate, um, but it was a story about an earthquake that happened in about 19, uh, late uh, 1980s uh, in Armenia. Uh, and it killed over 30,000 people in less than four minutes. And I did check that. That part is true. And after the quake, one father uh, rushed to his son's school and found the building that had been leveled to the ground. After the uh, trauma and shock uh, subsided just momentarily, he remembered a promise that he had made to his son. He said, no matter what, I will be there for you. I'll always be there for you. So tears uh, streaming down his cheeks as he looked at the pile of debris that was once his son's school. And he remembered that his son's classroom would be in the back right corner of the building. And so he went there and he rushed and started digging through the rubble, taking uh, pieces off. <clears throat> well, it didn't take too long before other parents tried to pull him off saying, it's too late, they're dead, right? And the father just turned and asked, will you help me? As he continued digging. Others came and, and tried to stop the man, but each time he said, will you help me? At one point, the fire chief showed up and tried to pull him off of the school's debris, saying that fires were breaking out. Explosions were happening everywhere. And they said, you are in danger. We will take care of it. Go home. To which the loving father replied, will you help me? The father just kept digging for his son, stone by stone. He dug for eight hours, then 12, then 24, then 36 hours without stopping. And finally, in the 38th hour, he pulled back a boulder and he heard his son's voice. He screamed his son's name and the voice answered him, Dad, Dad, it's me. 
I told the other kids not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, you would save me because you promised that you would always be there for me. Like I said, I don't know if that story is true, but it does illustrate a point. I think it's what we see uh, in our text this morning. Even as the world around the sun was literally shaken and crumbling, uh, and, and the boy had uh, really had no reason for hope, he trusted in his father's promise, a promise that his father had made to him long before. And in Psalm 56, uh, we find that David is in the midst of a lot of trouble. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances, but he puts his trust in God and in God's promises to David. Last week, we looked at Psalm 34, and this week we looked at Psalm 56. And um, just like Psalm 34, there's a superscription, there's a title at the beginning, which Brent read for us. And it reveals that this is indeed a Psalm of David, and it gives us a little bit of the context. Most of what we read uh, at, at the beginning of the title, we don't really know what all... We don't really know what everything means, right? We don't know what a miktam is. Um, we don't really know what the, what the dove on far off terebinths is. It, probably musical terms. Um, this is addressed to the choir master, but what we do know is that it tells us that it is of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And these are the events that we uh, read about in 1 Samuel 21. Not this week, but previously and, and then last week. David had gone to the Philistine city of Gath to seek refuge from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. He had, he had thrown uh, literally javelins or whatever, something similar, staffs uh, toward David to kill him. It was, it was confirmed that Saul wanted David dead. Um, so he went to Gath. And, uh, but it didn't take too long before the king's servants recognized David. Right? He was the famous Israelite warrior who'd killed Goliath and had killed thousands of Philistines. In fact, they even had said in the text in, in 1 Samuel 21 that they sang songs about David, right? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. So David was known. And when David learned what they were saying, and the text tells us in uh, once again, in 1 Samuel 21, that Saul, or that, I'm sorry, that, that uh, David was much afraid. They had no doubt seized David at that point and were trying to figure out what to do with him. And so if you were here last week, you know that this is the same uh, portion of, of scripture. This is the same incident that was connected with Psalm 34. And just by quick review, in Psalm 34, it was really an invitation that David was giving to the congregation to join him in worship, right? Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so he's saying, worship the Lord with me. And then verse eight, which is one that we uh, think of for Psalm 34, it was written as an encouragement to experience the goodness of God uh, for uh, themselves, right? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So it's this, really exuberant uh, welcome. But Psalm 56 has a very different feel to it. Psalm 56 is written uh, as David's prayer. David is crying out to the Lord for help. And it's through the words of the psalm that 
Really, we, he brings intimacy and into, into the intimate space of his own heart and his private words to God. We see him wrestling with his raw emotions, fear, loneliness, oppression, being utterly overwhelmed by his situation as he had been taken captive by the Philistines. But what we see in David's prayer, what we see in the psalm, is what he believes about God. That he's placing his hope in God as a gracious protector and a deliverer. He takes God at his word and he believes that God is faithful to keep his promises. Really, my hope for this morning is that we'll begin to see that we too uh, can live our lives and face our own struggles with a similar assurance and trust in God's word. Our main point for this morning is that God is our gracious protector and deliverer. He's, he's the gracious protector and deliverer of his people. And we're going to look at two ways in which we see this on display in the text. And the first is that God is the gracious protector and deliverer of his people. And we see this displayed through his prayer of hope in the midst of fear. And that's really what this psalm is. It is a prayer of hope in the midst of fear. One of the things that we may notice first, uh, in, and I want to draw us our attention to, in David's prayer of hope is his honesty. Right? He's afraid. Like, listen to how he describes the weight of his circumstances and how he's feeling them. So if you have the text open, I would, uh, I would encourage you to, to read along with. He says, uh, be gracious to me, O God, for man does what? Man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. Do you see the repetition, right, of being trampled all day? Then verse 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And we'll come back to that text. But then look at, uh, look at, then at verse 5. He says, all day long, once again, that repetition they injure my cause. All of their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife and they lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. And so how would we describe what David is feeling or what he's going through? The first thing I think we can see is that he is overwhelmed. Right? Imagine a mother who, you, you know, she tells you about her day and she's like, the kids have been bugging me or crying or whatever it is all day long. I think she's like, hey, all day long, they're crying, no big deal. No, she's overwhelmed, and David is overwhelmed. All day long, an attacker has oppressed him, trampled all day long, and all day long, they've injured his cause. So verses one, two, and five. First, it had been Saul, and then it was the Philistines, but it was relentless. David was facing heavy opposition, right? He says that, right, he's trampled on. In verse 1. In verse 2, once again, trampled on. And it's the imagery that the language that he's using in the imagery is that of a dog relentlessly pursuing its prey and snapping at the heels of its victim. So imagine, this is how David feels. Then verse 5, he says, they injure my cause. Or you may see a footnote in your text that says they twist or distort my words. And their thoughts are against me for evil. Those opposing David were slandering him. Right? Whether they misrepresented him or his words, or they were just maybe waiting for him to make a mistake. They were opposing David. And they wanted, uh, they wanted 
him to look bad. They wanted him to, to show him in his worst possible light. Those who opposed David seemed to be lying in wait for him to trap him in his words or in his actions. And lastly, David is afraid, right? He, he mentions it three times, right? He's afraid in verses 3, 4, and 11. And the word that David uses here is the same word that we find in 1 Samuel 21, 12, where it said that David was much afraid of the king of Gath. David gets to a point in the psalm where he says that he's not afraid, but the reality is that David is running for his life. And I think in some ways we can relate to David. Maybe not, you know, none of us are probably fleeing for our lives. None of us are being pursued by attackers. But I think all of us can relate to feelings of being overwhelmed by our circumstances. Maybe being opposed by other people. Maybe being afraid of the unknown, the future. Maybe feeling alone in the midst of our troubles. I think all of us feel that. At some level, at some sense, at some time. Right? It could be, as I mentioned before, a crying infant who just won't seem to be comforted no matter what you do. You can feel overwhelmed. It might be a disobedient child who won't listen and, and seems to keep running headlong into trouble. Maybe it's chronic pain. Or maybe it's an unexpected diagnosis. It could be not enough money to pay the bills and not knowing what you're going to do. It could be a critical boss that never seems satisfied with your work and acts like he's really just trying to get you. Maybe you're overwhelmed by a bully at school who he just wants to intimidate you or try to get you to do something that you really don't think is right. Or maybe others are gossiping about you and trying to ruin your reputation. The list could go on and on. There are almost countless reasons why we might feel overwhelmed, opposed, afraid, or alone in our troubles. And so the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond in, in those moments? Well, what we see David doing is that he responds by returning to God in the midst of his fear. So out of his fear, he cries out to God. We say, well, that's obvious, right? It's a psalm, it's a prayer, Steve. We already read through it. But I think it's worth noting that that is David's first response. Because when we feel overwhelmed or afraid, when I do, that's not usually my first response. Right? Sometimes, what do I do if I'm overwhelmed? I, I might tell somebody else, reach out and text or call and tell them what I'm going through and look for help there. Or maybe, maybe we just start ruminating about it, thinking about our problems over and over, uh, letting our anxieties building up, thinking about all the possible outcomes and, and how we might solve the problem that faces us. But David prays, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. He knows that God is listening and he knows that God is gracious and so he, he appeals to God's grace. Not his own merit, not what he has done, but, but God's grace as the basis of his prayer. And then he gives the reason for his appeal as he pours out his heart before the Lord. Man, trample on me. Men trample on me. All day long, attacker oppresses me. And he goes on and on. And then when he gets to verse 3, he says, when I am afraid. And the Hebrew there says, in the day that I'm afraid. So when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 
And it seems as if in that moment, David stops and allows God's promises to take center stage in his mind. In the day that I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, God. In God's word, in God's word, I trust, I praise God praises, uh, David praises God's word because it's his self-revelation. It's what God says about himself, so who God is. And it contains God's promise of his mercy. We think about David and uh, what he meant when he talked about God's word. It would have been the portion of the Old Testament that had been written up to that point. So it wouldn't have, first, uh, it wouldn't have 2 Samuel, right? But it would have had the early books of uh, the Bible, but David also may have been referring to God's promises given directly to him. For instance, that God had promised that he would place David on the throne as the king of Israel. God's gracious character and power led David to see his circumstances and his opponents, for that matter, in a totally different light. David remembered what God had promised and he remembered that God always keeps his promise. As he remembered, he, he says, I shall not be afraid for what can flesh do to me. And it is it, as though in the presence of the Lord, David's fears are driven back. Right? It puts David's fears into perspective. There's a, an, an account in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 that I think might be helpful. Right? We find the account of when the prophet Elijah and his servant wake up early in the morning to find that their city was surrounded by an army, a huge army, uh, with horses and chariots. It was sent by the Syrian king to capture Elijah and take him with him. And in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 15, uh, the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So imagine, he's thinking, I think there's not too many of us here. Uh, and there's a whole army surrounding the city. But then in verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So as fearful as it was to have an army, an enemy army surrounding him, all of a sudden, uh, Elisha's servant is, is given eyes to see that God's army is much bigger. He's there to protect. Elisha's servant was overcome with fear because of that enemy army. But his fear was lessened when his eyes were opened. When he saw that that enemy was not nearly so threatening compared to God. The thing is, the opposing army was still there. They, still, they were still surrounded by their enemies, but now it was different. And I think it's also interesting to think about the fact that he didn't cause those, that, that, uh, the army of God, that angelical army to surround them. He didn't pray that they would surround him. He prayed that his eyes would be opened. The reality was that, that God's army was already there surrounding Elisha and his servant, even though the ser servant didn't have eyes to see it. And you could say the same thing for David, right? As though he had been overwhelmed by all of, uh, all of his enemies, he remembered God was there and God was for him. God's promise to one day make David king 
reminded him that there was, there was only so much that, that mortal flesh could do to him right? because God had promised him that he would be king. But he knew that the enemy couldn't kill him. They might harm him. They might give him grief, but ultimately God, God's will would be fulfilled. And so once David's focus returned to God, he found that his fears were put back into perspective and his heart was comforted. And can't this, the same thing be said of us? Right? We can feel overwhelmed by our own circumstances and surrounded by our problems, but, but God has made promises, hasn't he? Think with me. Some of the promises that God has made toward us. Jesus promised that my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's assurance there. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he will hold us fast and he'll continue the work he's begun in us. And we read in Matthew 11.28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. God has promised rest for his children. And then in Romans 8, which Brent read for us, that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God when we are in Christ Jesus. But God doesn't always change our circumstances, but he does help us to see them in light of his promises. And it's helpful because as one author pointed out, he said, it's so easy for us to focus on what is overwhelming us. And the more that we focus on it, the more overwhelming it seems. For instance, the more we think about those who oppose us, the more oppressive they can seem. And the more we dwell on our loneliness, the lonelier we feel. The more we contemplate our, fear, our fears, the more afraid we become. So what is the antidote? Instead of looking at them, we look at him. Put your trust in the character of God and see your circumstances in light of him. Now, we want to be careful. This isn't like a, some self-help, uh, just power of positive thinking type of thing. This isn't a mental exercise. It's a matter of humbling ourselves under the gracious and mighty hand of God and casting all of our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. That's how we see the circumstances of our lives in light of God's grace. Well, if we go on to verse 5, David then picks back up and recounts before the Lord what his enemies have been doing to him. He says, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts uh, are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. And once again, I appreciate David's honesty. He doesn't just kind of give some generic prayer, but he, he legitimately pours out his life and what he's seen and what he's struggling with. Even if David's perspective had changed and God's promises had calmed David's fears, his difficult circumstances had not changed. He was still being oppressed. And so David knew that, that God does what? What do we see? That God sees his oppressors and how they're treating David. 
And that God will ultimately bring those who oppress David to justice. We see that in verse 7. He says, for their crimes, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. That's pretty heavy, right? How, how should we understand David's plea that God would cast down the peoples? Well, first we need to realize that, that David is talking about the unjust people who were wrongfully opposing him and sinfully plotting to take his life. This, these weren't just like people he didn't like. These were people who were trying to uh, take his life. But also, David, we see that David's asking God to bring his enemies to justice. He's not trying to take matters into his own hands, but he's leaving it up to God and his own justice. Right, as Brent read, right, Jesus told his own disciples that persecution would come, but not to, fear that those, not to fear those who bring the persecution. Because why? And we read in, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, because God sees their sinful deeds. Matthew 10, 26, he says, Jesus says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ultimately, what do we see in this? We're reminded that we serve a God who judges and punishes sin. So David is asking that God would execute, his, execute justice against his enemies. And as Christians, we understand that it is only by the grace of God that our own sins are forgiven. Right? That, our, that we don't stand in judgment from God. And so we entrust ourselves and our enemies to God who judges justly. And we trust that God will show mercy to whom he shows mercy. But as David pours out his heart, he trusts in the mercy of God. He, he lays his burden before the Lord. And that's what I think God calls us to do, to honestly pray before him wherever we're at and to trust him, to lay out our hearts and, and to believe that he will indeed rescue us, that he'll meet us. So by the mercy of Christ, God is our gracious protector and deliverer. When we find ourselves in the midst of fear, we should make it a practice of praying to him for help and protection. Not turning to ourselves or, or, uh, or others, but, but praying to him for help and protection. So the first thing that we see, uh, God's his gracious protector and deliverer of his people, we see displayed through a prayer of hope in the midst of fear and then also through David's response of trust in our gracious God. Through David's response of trust in a gracious God. And just as God saw the, the works of oppression by his enemies, he sees and hears and knows and remembers the suffering of his servants. Verse 8, David writes these words acknowledging God's tender care and attention. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In other words, David was reminded that he, he's not alone. Right? Like a loving and attentive parent, God was carefully watching over David, even while he was captive. Even the restless tossings and turnings of a sleepless night, 
Every tear that was shed and uh, was accounted for and kept for safekeeping. Everything was carefully accounted for. Think of the, the powerful imagery of God's tender care for his children, for David here, but, but really for all of his children. So have you ever woken up in the middle of the night with your mind racing? Right? Filled with all the anxieties and unsolved problems and unresolved conflicts causing you to feel alone and afraid? I'd say if you're old enough, you have. If you're young enough, you will. I know I have. But to think that the God of the universe knows, that, knows every time that you've tossed back and forth in your bed, he sees and he counts every tear that you have ever shed. He hears every single cry and he remembers and records. He never forgets any of these things. The all-powerful God is not indifferent to you, friends. He hears and sees and knows and remembers and cares for you in your suffering. So we're not alone. God sees us in our sufferings and then responds, as David writes in verse 9. He says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call. This I know that God is for me. What does he mean, that my enemies will turn back in the day that I call? Well, God is responding by turning David's enemies back. When? When David calls. When, when David prays. Those who would relentlessly pursue David through lies and deception, oppression, and force are themselves forced to retreat. They're turned back by God in response to David's prayers. So think about that. In the midst of our own difficulties, sometimes we treat prayer like it's an afterthought or, or maybe the last resort if nothing else helps. But here David speaks of prayer almost as if it's like a secret weapon. And in a sense, it is. Right? David has been seized by his enemies, but as he calls out to God, he knows that God will listen because he knows that God is for him. And that is perhaps one of the most amazing parts of this psalm. Certainly that David, right, we know that he's in a unique spot. Right? He's the anointed future king of Israel. But as Christians, Paul says of us in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's one truth that we can cling to in the midst of fearful and overwhelming circumstances, it's this, that our God is for us. That God is for you. That God gave up his only son that you might be redeemed. But that he's promised that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation or distress. Not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not even sword. Right? It doesn't mean that we won't be afraid. In fact, we're pretty sure that we will. But when we are, we can look to God for hope and deliverance. Our faithful, covenant-keeping God he is the object of our trust. He's the one that we are called to look for. And so then David repeats the same refrain that he had said before, but he expands on it just a little bit. He said, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Right? These are precious words 
right? In God, whose word I praise. In God, who has revealed himself by his word, who apart from his word, we would not know him. And so when David says he praises God's word, it's not like he is worshiping God's word, but he is praising God for his word. For it's through his word that he knew that God was for him. And then he says, in the Lord, whose word I praise. So when he uses the word God throughout the psalm, it's Adonai, right? And, and so this is really related to God as the creator, the all-powerful. But now he uses the word Yahweh, the word that God had used to reveal himself to his people in the Lord, in Yahweh, whose word I praise. So he's not just the God of everyone, the creator God, but he is the God of those whom he's called. The creator God is his God. In God I trust, and so I shall not be afraid for what can man do to me? And the answer to David's rhetorical question that he asked the second time is that fleshly man can do nothing to him. Yeah, they can, it's true that they can overwhelm him, they can oppress him, they can cause him to be afraid, but all of those things are temporary. Nothing they can do can diminish God's power or overthrow God's will, right? Nothing that they can do can take away God's promises or the fact that God is for David. And that's true for us as well. And so David responds in praising God and giving him thanks because he looks to God's faithfulness in the past. And David knows that he can trust that God will keep his promises in the future. He says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I'll render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before you in the light of life. See, as Christians, what has God done? God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, from darkness to light. He's a good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. He, has, he who's begun a good work, he has promised he will finish it in you. He's promised to hold us fast to the very end. Right? Because he has done thus, because he has saved us, we know that we can trust him. And so when we're afraid, I pray that God will graciously allow each of us to put our trust in him. That he would remind us of his word and his promises to us. And that we would remember his tender care for us. And that we would rightly respond to our own, our fears and anxieties and difficulties of our lives by turning to him in the midst of that fear, in the midst of our sorrow or feeling overwhelmed, that we would trust him as our gracious God. Let us remember that God is indeed with us, that he is for us, and that he calls us sons and daughters. God is the gracious protector and deliverer of his people. And so let us pray in hope in the midst of our fears, and let us respond in trust to our gracious God. Let us pray. Father, in many ways, this is a very heavy psalm. And yet it is a psalm that is so applicable to us today. As I prayed at the beginning, I know, Father, that many of us carry fears and anxieties with us, some daily. 
So I pray that you would teach us. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to cry out to you. Teach us to believe in your promises. For you are a good and gracious God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.